Hello and welcome to the to episode nine of the Disc Golf Hour. I'm Liam and I'm joined by my co-host Jeremy. Hello. And this week we have the flaming hot take way too early in the season power rankings uh, for the DGPT. Very exciting. Uh, we've also got a little bit of news to cover, uh, a look back at the event that just happened, that one being Waco, and to look forward to the event that's happening this coming weekend, which is the Open at Belton. So let's get right into it because there's a lot to cover this week. So the first thing we want to talk about in the news, and calling this news is very, um, I mean, it, it's newsworthy, I guess, but it's, it's something that comes up often. Uh, recently on Twitter, and I think maybe a little bit on Instagram too, there's been some discussions about rules enforcement. And Jara, I don't know if you want to if you want to take it away here to explain the exact details of what have been going what's been going on to give people context. Sure, it's come up specifically in regards to Nicolo Castro and how how long he takes to putt. And several people are somewhat justifiably wondering why he doesn't get called for for rules violations every time because you're only allowed to take 30 seconds from the time you approach your shot. To, to throw the disc and he frequently takes longer than that and often takes significantly longer than that on putts and there was another clip sort of floating around and the commentators were even commenting like it's still nico and like well it's either this or commercials like you know <laughs> so everyone sort of is acknowledging that he's taking too long and he just doesn't get called for the violation by his card mates and lots of people are saying like oh his card mates should be calling him but i'm of the view that i think the rules of enforcement need to change because it's not in his card mates best interest to call him on it i don't think and and just for context for people who aren't aware with with tournament disc golf basically the way that it works like there are there's a, a rather long rule book actually um but it's on the people who you're playing with to call people uh, on an infraction. And what actually has to happen is that one person has to call and then someone else on the card has to second it, right? It's actually two people on the card have to agree that there's been an infraction. And it's it's completely uh, player regulated. There are no officials. There's not even, I think if you if you run into something where you really can't agree on whether or not there was an infraction, you can go to like the tournament director or something like at a higher level event, certainly. But like uh, at most events, it's it's just you have to sort it out amongst the four of you who are on the card. Yeah, at at any level, you should be able to bring any discrepancies to the to the TD. But yeah, as you say, by and large, it's it's up to the four people on the card. And I'm of the opinion that players have decided the longer Nico takes, the less likely he is to make the putt. So <laughs> they're disincentivized yeah. for calling him for that reason because. Letting him take longer means his score will be lower, and therefore he's less likely to beat them, the the people who are competing against him. And also, if they call him, Nico's a relatively volatile character. And even if you're calling somebody who's not Nico, who's less volatile, then you sort of create an awkward atmosphere on the card. It's even though these players are professionals and. I'm sure most of them would take it the right way. It still feels awkward to call a violation on somebody you're competing against. And that can play not only into their head, but into your head. And it sort of creates a, a weird atmosphere on the card. So that's another disincentive to for players to call call violations on their card mates. 
And the only benefit I see is the marginal amount of time saved in the round by calling your opponent. And it, I'm not even sure once you get around to calling the person that you end up saving time. So It's also like, or sorry, go ahead. So yeah, overall, I'm not sure there's any benefit to the players calling the infraction. And since it's their job and they're competing, I don't think it's reasonable to expect them to sacrifice their own like mental acuity. Well, their own like utility and chances of winning the tournament in order to uphold tournament integrity. Like, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not something else you should have to, to really do. I think it's interesting too. Like, so I'm coming from an ultimate Frisbee background where there's also self-officiating, right? Like everything is, is hundred percent self-officiated. And in, in that context, I think it makes a lot more sense because yes, between different games, like the level of enforcement is going to be different, right? So like the team that I'm on might call less things than, than some other teams, but like game to game, that's all going to kind of come out in the wash. Like we're going to call the same amount of fouls against every team that we play against. And so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a wash, I guess. But in, in disc golf, it's a little awkward, right? Because let's say that like 10% of the player base are going to be really active on making calls and 90% aren't. Well, now all of a sudden you're like introducing this variance where like you have a one in 10 chance of just like potentially having extra strokes added to your score because you get paired with one of these players who's willing to call things. And like, there are just other people who you're going to be competing against who aren't going to be subjected to the same level of rules enforcement. Right. And from a competitive integrity standpoint, like that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, it's, it, I don't actually think it improves competitive integrity as you're no, as if you're anything, mentioning. It, it makes it worse, right? Because it means that you're actually being like evaluated on different criteria round to round, um, which like is, is a pretty big problem. And, and to get back to the ultimate Frisbee analogy, I mean, ultimate Frisbee recognized that this was, this was an issue. And the solution that they went to was, it depends on what level you're talking about at the professional levels. There are just actual referees now, which this isn't an ultimate Frisbee podcast, but there were thoughts about the introduction of, of referees into ultimate and, and people had, had a lot of opinions about that. But I mean, at the collegiate level, this is actually the system I like the most. They introduced a system called observers. And these are basically just people who watch the game. If there's a foul call or a violation called and the teams can't agree, come to a resolution as to whether it's a foul or not, you can agree to go to the observer and they make a ruling. And so it's like, it kind of mitigates a lot of the conflict because you go, I think it's this. The other team says, no, we think it's that. And rather than that dive, dive, like turning into an argument, you just say, okay, we'll go to the observer and the observer decides, right? So you get to preserve some of that self-officiated uh, aspect without totally getting bogged down by it. I don't think that approach would work for ultimate though, or for disc golf though. Um, I think with disc golf, you would have to just go to full on having officials. I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same way. Well, I think it's, it's too hard to have like, cause you need to get somebody for every card. Yeah. And I think if you're expending the resources to get somebody for every card, you should just make them a full blown official. You shouldn't have them be sort of a, a neutral neutral party. Cause you're going to have to, to train them and pay them. And at that point you might as well just like, well, and vet them, right? Like, yeah. officiating something like disc golf is, I mean, it's not like gigantic amounts of money, but it's, 
it's non-trivial amounts of money on the line. So yeah, for sure. You probably can't just be having straight up volunteers. I mean, I think that kind of thing would get noticed pretty quickly, but also like that is another massive headache and another massive problem that potentially gets introduced. So, so in your mind, what, what's the approach? Is there some kind of incremental approach that could be taken in, in the short term, like something that we could change now that would make things better? Or is it like disc golf needs to have enough infrastructure that hiring officials is plausible, or we have to keep this kind of broken system? Um, I don't think there's a good way to do it short term. I would like to see personally like TDs take more of the responsibility in terms of like especially at the professional level dealing with that and especially the dgpt like they're gaining a lot more resources so i think they should be the ones who for the tour should be responsible for like training supplying and dealing with those types of issues but i'd also like to see some amount of retroactive penalties although i don't think it's fair I no, because you can't only penalize people who are on film, right? That's it, yeah, I know it's it's not fair, but like they're like on the tour, everybody knows who the slow slow players were. Like we've played competitive things before, and you know people who just get a reputation for doing something, and it's it's the same people over and over again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's typically a pretty consistent thing. And up and like up to and including now, they have no actual incentive to change. Like, is Nico Nico knows he's been slow for years, a decade, and <laughs> and he, yeah, more. And he says he just gets lost in his own head and doesn't realize it. But like, it's not anybody else's fault. It's on you to ensure you follow the rules of the game. But yeah, he has no incentive to because no one calls the, him on it ever. Yeah, well, he's not being punished for breaking the rules. Yeah. And I don't think, the, as I mentioned before, I don't think it's in the player's best interest to call him on breaking the rules because, like, the tournament integrity doesn't improve and allowing him to do this increases their chances of doing well. So why would they? What if at the DGPT level, not at smaller tournaments, but at just at the pro level, I've got the hot idea. We introduce the shot clock you give one tournament volunteer actual literal shot clock you set it to 30 seconds and as as the player has to identify when they they believe they are standing behind their lie and like starting you start to start shot clock up and then if you don't throw your shot by the time it goes off (laughs) you get a you get a penalty (laughs) it's like much more cut dry no subjective try to work out has it been 30 seconds it's exciting you get the buzzer beater putters but sorry, I mean, I think I might have just fixed disc golf. This might be, this, or, this, is, this is a hot idea. My background or one of my backgrounds in competitive games is from poker. And it's up to the the players you're playing with to call the clock on you. So you could also do that, which mm-hmm. is like maybe a more realistic thing to implement. It's like is, less, like it's less um, contra- like confrontational too, to do something like that. Exactly. Like if you're not like been saying t- like, we're going to give you a penalty where you're saying, Hey, hurry up. Yeah. Like if somebody has been taking a long time on their putts, the next time you go, you're like, Hey, we're going to, you've been taking a long time. We're going to put the clock on you. Let us know when you're ready. And we're going to start the timer. And then you just like clock them for their next, 
four putts or whatever. And you can even still do that self-police. Like the group can, like everybody has a smartphone. Somebody can just go into their bag or steal a phone from a caddy or something if you don't want to carry your own phone and like clock them for their next five putts or whatever. Just to like. That, that's still confrontational, I guess. It doesn't really fix the problem, but it, it's at least a start. But I think it's it's more reasonable because like part of the thing I found like in my own experience playing tournaments is it's awkward to call somebody because like if they've already been lining up a putt for 30 seconds you don't want to say hey you've taken too long like courtesy violation yeah because like you don't want to be talking when they're about to actually putt yeah maybe they're going to take the putt and not spend another 30 seconds lining it up yeah so like by the time they've already spent 30 seconds i feel like it's too late so i feel like some sort of preemptive situation like that might might be better i don't know it is awkward because then there will still be some percentage of people who just like won't ever call the won't call, call the, the clock, clock or will get get offended when you do call the clock on them or whatever. I wonder or sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I do like it better than the, the current situation because to me, it feels like easier to do than just like outright telling somebody they're taking too long and it's sort of like less arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very not arbitrary, in fact, right? Like it's super yeah. concrete to say. Hey, we have this clock. The clock says you took too long, you know? Uh, the other thing that I thought of is maybe taking some of the rules enforcement out of the hands of players, but like not stuff that's stuff like courtesy violations, but like we have spotters who are like looking for in and out of bounds of whether discs are in and out of bounds. And I wonder if that's something that could maybe be like moved away from, from player decisions, like whether whether or not you could just have someone who just says this is in bounds, this is out of bounds. That I think you lose less time on, but I don't know. I don't know if that's something that you could potentially potentially implement. I guess it, it runs into a, the same problems as other things, though, of like you have to pay these people, you have to make sure that there's still competitive integrity with this kind of thing, and like that that's not necessarily the easiest thing to maintain. But like the thing that I'm thinking of is like like you and I were talking about this a bunch, like pages. Um, was it, did she make the Mando or did she not make the Mando at, was it Worlds? Worlds, I think it, yeah. it was Worlds, right? Like, yeah. that's just something that the card has to decide. And, like, for better or for worse, like, I'm not even convinced that the whole card was watching her tee shot. Like, they might have been... They pretty clearly like, weren't. Yeah, might have been wanting to throw, figure out what they're going to throw, looking at the wind, talking to their caddy. Like, there's a bunch of things that they could have been doing that aren't watching their card mate throw their drive to make sure she makes the Mando, right? Like, um and that's like that really feels like something that should be maybe watched by someone else like you could even you you could do it on smaller scale things like if it was like mandatories or if it was just like this particular out of bounds that's wonky you could just have like you could implement it on a smaller level cuz that person just gets to stay at that hole saying this person made the mando this person didn't make the mando good good not good whatever right and then that's at least a lower cost I feel like that that's something that you could you could see sooner. I really like that idea. I think it's less necessary for OB because OB is just reliant on where the disc ends up. And it's very easy for the card to like walk up and deter- determine. And I'd rather the card makes the decision than than some other party. Some other But like person. for something like the Mando, I think it's like much better. Yeah, it, for the Mando I, Mando example, I think that's a, a great implementation where I'd love to see it move away from the players. Cause like although it is in the rules that you're technically expected to watch all of your card made shots, it's not realistic. No, like, 
when a tournament's going on, you have so many things to focus on and you need to use that time to like sort of like center yourself, figure out what you're going to do, plan. You don't need to be like spending even more focus watching your card mate shots. It's just not not realistic. Yeah, I, I completely agree. But so maybe maybe that's something. So there we go. We've we fixed rules enforcement uh, in <laughs> the last 10 minutes. Definitively. Perfect problem solving by Liam and Jeremy. Uh, call us, DGPT, if you want if you want more ideas. I'm sure if you give me another gin and tonic, I would figure it out. Uh, okay, cool. So let's move on from the news slash talk about the rules enforcement to talk about the tournament recap. So this last weekend was Waco. Uh, you and I sort of discussed uh, ahead of time uh, that this tournament had the potential to be chaotic, let's say, uh, be yes. a little bit un- unpredictable. And boy, oh boy, did it at least somewhat deliver. Uh, yes. So I think the the big things to key in on as major stories are uh, Valerie Mondahano winning her first DGPT event uh, in pretty, I wouldn't say convincing fashion, but she looked really solid. Um, yeah. She- the, whole, the whole tournament. Yep. Uh, that's, that's storyline number one that we can, we can talk about. Storyline number two is probably, uh, hard not to talk about Paul Macbeth, you know, yeah. was skipping LVC a good idea, certainly looking like it right now. Uh, and then after that, we can go talk about some of the, the chaos that ensued and lower down the leaderboard. So, uh, let's talk about, about Valerie Mondahano. This is a, a big tournament win for her. She won by four strokes. So she beat out Kristen, Kristen Tatar by, by four strokes, that's a little deceptive because basically what happened is that on hole 17, uh, Valerie made a, a great shot to set up a birdie putt that forced Kristen to be more aggressive than she wanted to be. And, and Kristen just shanked her shot and took a double on that hole, I believe. Yeah. Uh, thus basically ending the tournament um, on, on the spot. Uh, but yeah, she played really well uh, all tournament. I think going into day three, was she tied for the lead? No, she was still two strokes back of Evelina. Two strokes back. Ah, uh, a later two or two or three, and uh, I think she was one back of Kristen. I think she was tied with Own. Yeah, she was. She actually she was one. She was one up on Kristen going into the last. Oh yeah, you're right. I think. Yeah, yeah. She shot a sixty-eight and a sixty-four, and Kristen shot a sixty-nine and a sixty-four. But yeah, she played super consistent. Her mid-range game, in particular, looked very good. Uh, yes. I would say she was really clean in the woods and her putting looked really solid too. Like mm-hmm. even in the winds, she had a really direct accurate spin putt and yeah. like putting that well circle one in those winds is, is really impressive. Yeah. So anyway, so big, big uh, congratulations her. I know she was saying, uh, she was pretty emotional after winning, I think, right? Because her, her, her grandfather, grandfather had passed away somewhat recently and she had sort of decided she needed to win one for him. And so it was great, great for her to get a chance to to do that so quickly. Well, and this was her first event of the year too, or uh-huh. big event of the year. First she didn't event, play yeah. LVC or, or the Memorial. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then rounding out the sort of top five, uh, Kristen took second kind of in a, in a runaway. There's a big gap between first and second. And then Katrina Allen rallied back and shot uh, a 59 in round three, she had had a poor start to uh, the tournament. Well, by her standards, at least. Yes. Um, not not actually all that bad a, a start by any means, but but by her standards, she was she w- wouldn't have been happy with it, I don't think. Uh, and then she actually shot a ten twenty three rated fifty nine, 
uh, in the last round to, to take third place. And then in fourth place, you had some some old and some young, I think is the best way to describe it. We had Cat uh, Merch, uh, who's 20, uh, uh, who shot one down. And we had Owen Scoggins, who I think won 40 plus worlds last year, right? I believe she did. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> some old guard, some new guard. Uh, yeah, very uh, shame for Owen. She, she also had a bit of a a collapse down the stretch. Not like, again, in a way that was super problematic, but she was sort of in line to be challenging for solo third place. And uh, I think she was four under going into hole 17 and she ended up at, at one under. So rather uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically, she started missing some putts too, which is normally you'd yeah, sort of, the thing of anyone you... in the FPO division, you'd bank on own to be nailing the putts, but. She was missing uh, a couple. Yeah, so that, that rounds out the sort of top five. I think the other two stories to talk about at the, in the FBO, we could talk about every player's finish, but but there's a couple of more people I think that are worth talking about. Jera, I'm going to let you take the floor on this one because I know you have some rather strong opinions. Uh, Evelina Salonen, uh, go ahead. <laughs> so there's there's two statistics I would like to, to talk about. Uh, it is... Shots gained T to green, where she was first by a country mile. Valerie Mondahano was second, and uh, Evelina was nine ahead of her. <laughs> um, and then strokes gained putting, where she was 19 strokes behind Valerie Mondahano. Ah, uh, I see. Who won the tournament. Yes. And, That'll explain uh, this t- the 10 stroke difference. Yes. <laughs> and uh, she was leading the tournament through the first two days. Mm-hmm. But notably, the fir- I don't think she made a circle one X putt until day two. She, her putting, I, I mentioned it briefly in our last episode that from what I'd seen at the Memorial, her putting was not good. Like she was missing 10 footers. That unfortunately continued. She was not putting well, even on day two when it was, relatively calm conditions days one and three you can sort of excuse because the wind was quite high and so missing putts in 30 mile per hour winds is like pretty defensible yeah excusable for sure but her putt just she she clearly has no confidence on the putting green and it looked bad too like it's not even like they were chaining out or like there was a mechanics problem well, maybe there was a mechanics problem, not a confidence problem, but like it's not like like she was like smooth and in control and just missing them. Like they looked floaty at times. Like whoa. Well, even her five footer, she was putting almost up into the chain assembly. Yeah, like, it was horrifying. We were watching on Sunday and like holding our breath every time she was she was uh, yeah like just just even like uh, chipping out or whatever like. Yeah, so she's she's been throwing the disc super super well. Like to be nine strokes ahead, tee to green of the field is insane. Yeah. So if she can figure out the putting thing, she's yeah, gonna look, start look winning out. tournaments like very easily <laughs> because yeah, 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 yeah. off the tee and approaching, she's just about better than everyone else in the division right now. Yeah. So hopefully she's able to sort that out relatively soon because 
she'll she'll start seeing some success if she if she's <laughs> yeah. able to. And That's... the thing is, like I've watched some of the tournaments she was playing from last year. Gatekeeper Media did some of the. They sort of recast some of those tournaments in English, and I was I was watching those, and I've I've seen her putting. She she puts fairly well. Like it's not the strongest part of her game, but she's a good putter. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. <laughs> Yeah. So that's, that's one story that I wanted to talk about. She, uh, as Jared mentioned, she was leading going into day three and she fell all the way to ninth. She had pretty, pretty substantial collapse, um, between days one and, and day three. She shot nine twenty seven on day three, which, uh, I mean, you and I would be very happy to shoot that kind of round, but, but she's not. Um, so, so yeah, so that's one story I wanted to talk about. Um, very quickly, because we're talking about the Europeans right now, I do want to mention that that uh, Hannah Blumenmos had a this was a bounce back tournament for her. She got sixth. Um, she had a bad day one and clawed back in on days two and three. Um, so that's good for her because I think there were some concerns about her performance at LVC missing the cut entirely. Right, so nice, yeah, nice good, for her to, good to bounce back. Lock, for her. Lock a good result in, a, in a, an event. But the the last player I want to talk about because you and I had a brief conversation about this, and I think it's it's worth expand, expanding on a little bit. Is Sarah Hokum got sixteenth? Uh, she shot plus seven. She's uh, in terms of uh, we were talking about it in a bit of a, in, a, in the fantasy disc golf context a little bit, but she was out of scoring points in in the fantasy disc golf context for us. And you were kind of saying that you thought that's indicative of the overall level in the FPO getting higher. And I was hoping you could you could expand on that point a little bit. Yeah. So the reason I mentioned that is Sarah Hokum to me is sort of the barometer of on on certain courses of what somebody who can go out and is just not going to make many mistakes and is going to sort of shoot an average round like she's not going to get the distance holes. She's going to get a few of the technical holes and she's very unlikely to get huge numbers unless the conditions are sort of calling for huge numbers, which on day one and to some extent three, they definitely were. So I think she's going to sort of take, make less mistakes on average, get less birdies than average, but also get less bogeys than average. So she's sort of like a good barometer at this specific course. And I think, like in the past, she's done quite well at this event, but it was I largely her in both fantasy disc golf leagues for precisely that reason. <laughs> but I, I think it was largely because at this course, the rest of the division just made a bunch of mistakes and she was just able to get, get a lot of pars, get mm-hmm. a few birdies, minimize mistakes and just score not well, but fine relative to the field. And I think the days where you can succeed in the FPO scoring fine relative to the field are are limited, limited or perhaps over like, especially as more and more courses start getting built and tuned with FPO more in mind, you're going to need to be scoring and it's going to be harder to just par your way through the 400 foot par threes and get your birdies like very sparingly, like, more and more people are going to be able to get those 400 foot par threes and more and more people are more and more courses are going to be attackable for the FPO division. Like the weather was bad this weekend and we still had five players under par. We had a couple others right on even like Evelina was, was under par. She shot a 10, 14 rated first round. Like 
Yeah, yeah you're, you're just you're just not going to be able to to get by on two or three over par. Um, that's that's not going to work anymore. So that that's the last thing I wanted to talk about in the in the FPO. There's there's a bunch more stuff. Do you have anything in the FPO you wanted to bring up? Any any? I just uh, wanted to mention lines you want to mention. I think Paige finished ninth, which sixth. is sixth. Okay, sixth. Even par for six. Three three way tie with Hannah, uh, Macy Valadiaz, and Paige Pierce. Uh, they were all at even. Okay. Uh, still a pretty disappointing event for Paige, though. I think, although we we did mention this course isn't really suited for for Paige's game, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was it was an event where she was either going to get first by ten strokes or this was going to happen. I think. Yeah, d- bit disappointing for her, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the MPO. Um, uh, this this result less shocking or groundbreaking. Uh, At least Beth, in first place. I was I was gonna say in first place, Pollock Beth. He shot a ten seventy five round one, uh, and then just kind of never looked back. Uh, he did he did Macbeth things for the rest of the tournament, and on day three he didn't have the best round, but almost no one did actually in the in the MPO round three was rough uh, for a lot of people. You and I were watching it, and that lead card especially started off the the final round chucking some bricks yeah well uh, Macbeth went par 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 and gained strokes on the lead card yeah yeah uh so not a lot to say there I mean uh, we had, we've talked about it before Paul Macbeth skipped the Las Vegas challenge and you were speculating he doesn't always perform the best at that event the memorial is maybe a better event for him to start with that that seems to be bearing out at least for now he won by three strokes now this is where this event gets fascinating <laughs> because in second place uh we had luke humphreys who uh is on a heater uh no no other way to describe it i would say um he took fourth at lvc i think it was and now here here he is uh in second place and solidly in second place three strokes clear of of third at 20 under uh he also shot a 1075 rated 55 in round one was right there with Macbeth. And then basically just got got chipped away in the next two rounds. He, he lost a stroke to him in round two and two strokes to him in round three. But but Luke Humphreys, 10-16 rated, was uh, was in it the whole time. And, and we sort of said that Waco is a tournament where that can happen. But I also think that Luke Humphreys is just playing really well. And you were saying he's actually not that old. You know, like he's a, he's only recently joined the tour. He was the Rookie of the Year in what, 2018? 2019, I think. 2019 even. PDGA yeah, Rookie of the Year. Right. I think he won Am Worlds in 2018. There you go. So obviously a player, I, I don't think of him as being young, which I think is why I don't think of him as someone with like a lot of room to grow. Uh, but maybe he is younger than I realized too. Who knows? I haven't actually checked. I think he's uh, older than like his rookie year would suggest. But Right, right. Uh, but yeah. So anyway, so that that's an exciting result at second. And then uh, what I did when I was preparing to talk about this is I went for the old uh, sort by rating on the final results on the PDGA website. And uh, the top 10 rated players at this event, would you like to hear their finishing places? Sure. 12th, which is Ricky Wysocki. Paul McBeth got first. Calvin Heimberg, 16th. Chris Dickerson, 5th. That's a great finish when you hear the rest of these. Adam Hammes, Hammies, 77th. Kyle Klein, 16th, Kevin Jones, 21st, Gannon Burr, 25th, James Conrad, 12th, another hot finish, and Scott Withers, 34th. Uh, yeah. That is, that is not great. 
uh, from no. from the top end of the of the MPO field. Now, to be fair, you only have to go a couple more rating points down to hit Joel Freeman and Isaac Robinson, who got third and fifth. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a bit of a bloodbath. Um, yeah, so I mean, once again, Waco the Beast just uh, continues to eat people alive. I think a couple of storylines that I want to talk about from the MPO is Ricky is still kind of slow out of the blocks this season. This is another, again, it, it's it's not a bad finish. No one no one is saying that 12th is, is heinous, but when you're 1053 rated and you're supposed to be the best player in the world, uh, 12th is kind of a bad finish. You know, like you you sort of expect better from yourself. Um, so I think that's, that's worth noting. I think one really interesting finish, we talked about Luke Humphreys. You also had Chris, Chris Clemens and Joel Freeman uh, finishing joint third, which is which is interesting. Uh, Chris Clemens, I don't think, has really had like a breakthrough event like this. But the one, and obviously we are mildly biased here because we are in fact Canadian. Uh, but Thomas Gilbert came fifth at this event, shot a flaming hot 1075 in round three. A 53 was, I think it was tied for the hot round with Kyle Klein. Um, oh no, I tell her I, Cole Riddallen shot 52. Uh that's insane. But uh, yeah, at any rate, this is not a course that I think you would associate Thomas Gilbert with doing well at. No. Uh, so that to me is kind of interesting that maybe he has uh, kind of expanded his game a bit more. He's gotten got a new, a new edge to his game because I, this is the kind of course where uh, in years past I would have said I would be scared to be a, a Thomas Gilbert fan because uh, the, the wooded holes in particular seem like ones that have a tendency to eat him alive, but that's, uh, that didn't happen this week. He was, uh, this year he was, he was great. Uh, any other storylines you want to talk about from the MPO players you would like to, to mention specifically? I've kind of touched, touched on a bunch of them, but, uh, um, yeah. no, no one I want to talk about specifically, a, a, as you mentioned before, sort of like a really poor showing from a bunch of people like Simon Lazat came back uh, for this tournament and he had a good first round but dropped down to 60th yeah uh colton montgomery who's won the tournament previously finished oh 70th i had him in both fantasy leagues i got him in the fifth round in both fantasy leagues i was thinking what are these people doing letting me get a former champion of this event in the fifth round and what they were doing was playing much better than me clearly because they knew that he was not going to do very well. Oh, I, we would be remiss if we're talking about fantasy disc golf and poor performances to not mention Paul Ulibar. Uh, he was next on my list. <laughs> okay. What did uh, he shoot again? <laughs> I don't have the score, but uh, he finished in 102nd place. Okay, so he shot a 76 on day one. Uh, that's, I, I mean, it's 940 rated, but <laughs> it's not great. Um, yeah. Yeah, I I will find it while we're while we're we're waiting. Uh it was 13 over he shot. So, I mean, not good. Uh and then our, our poor friend uh had him in fantasy and was rather disappointed. You know, and it was like it wasn't like it was going that poorly. Going into 15, Paul Yubari, he's 6 over par, not the not the opening round you want at a tournament like Waco. And then on 15, he doubled, 16, he parred, 17, he tripled, and on 18, he double bogeyed. So from six over, 13 over, and just four holes is really a, a tale of sorrow, I think, that <laughs> it's worth worth mentioning at least. 
He didn't card a, bo- a birdie in round one. Uh, which, uh, yeah. Yikes. Okay, cool. So if you don't have anything else to talk about for Waco, I think we could move on. I don't know if you if you have any final closing thoughts about the about the event. Nope. All right, sick. So we've just been talking about some players, players we think are good, players we think are bad. Uh, well, okay, none of these players are bad. L- the players, less good. Players who have been having a weaker start to the year. Yes, exactly. Uh, so what we've done is we've constructed the uh, very early in the season power rankings. So our criteria for these rankings, it's a it's a, it's a 10-person list. Uh, I'm taking the FBO, Jared's taking the MPO. These are the 10 people ranked in order of who you think would win a tournament if it happened tomorrow. Uh, and that's important. It's not about where you think they would finish in the tournament. It's who you think would win. If a tournament happened tomorrow, which of these players do you think would win? Uh, so, Jared, why don't you lead off with your MPO list, and, and uh, we'll talk about it, and then we can talk about my FPO list. Sure. All right. Hit me with it. Do you want me to go bottom to top or top to bottom? I was thinking about this. Let's go Let's go top to bottom, because I think the top is going to be less surprising than the bottom. Sure. Maybe. We'll so find I have, out. I have Paul Macbeth first. Uh-huh. Uh, Seems fair. I think his start to the season just... He's gone two for two in terms of winning tournaments. It's it's pretty tough to argue with with that. I have Ricky Wysocki still at two, which is slightly controversial because he's had a medium start. But I think he, he was clearly the best player last season and his ceiling is clearly very high. Like he still made a ton of birdies at all these tournaments. He's just been making. Yeah, making he is still rigs. <laughs> so I still think he's very liable to start winning tournaments at basically the drop of a hat yep yep third you you will not get this one guess this one but i have drew gibson uh he played very well in the two tournaments he played at he did not play waco because he is moving but fair enough he looked so good in vegas and he played pretty well at the memorial as well what place did he get at memorial do we know offhand Um, it's okay if you don't not offhand but he didn't win but he did pretty well he was up there ish i think uh i have eagle in fourth um i think he still has the greatest ceiling of any player in the mpo division i think if eagle is at 100 percent and plays to his potential nobody can beat him uh fifth i have calvin heimberg uh, once once again a little bit of a slow start to the season but i still think his his potential is just higher than most other people's six got fourth at the memorial by the way i just went checked yeah okay quite quite a good finish yeah i i knew he was up there mm-hmm. i knew he wasn't first or second but uh chris dickerson sixth he's had kind of a sneaky good start to the season he's played pretty pretty well in both the lvc and the end in waco and I think he still has some room to grow because he probably still has some growing pains with his new discs as well. So he's probably still learning them to some extent. So I could see him even improving on on some finishes. And I'm sure he's lost some strokes to discs not doing exactly what he wants them to. Now here's where we start getting a little spicy. Seventh, I have Ganon Burr. Okay. Uh, he's clearly established himself as a tournament threat in, in Vegas. He played super clean. He was set the world on fire from circle two. So if he has 
more circle two putting performances like that, he's going to gain so many strokes on the field on certain courses where that's more relevant than it is, is elsewhere. Uh, eighth, I have Thomas Gilbert. Whoa. Holy. All right. Um, so he, he stayed in Florida for most of the off season. He went three for three on winning a tiers in Florida. Albeit they're not tour events, but you still have to play well to win an a tier. Yeah, Florida, home of many good disc golfers. Some some good warm weather there. People get to practice all year round. Yep. He did reasonably well in LVC and very good in uh, Waco. Like, he finished 10th in LVC, 5th in Waco. Those are great finishes. So, he's in the top 10. Um, Perfect. Ninth, I have Luke Humphreys. Hard to not have him in the list. I like it. Yeah. He is first in, the, in Pro Tour points currently, um, but... He has basically no pedigree on at the at the elite level, so he's lower down on the list. But we're recognizing, you know, he got game. And then tenth, I have Kevin Jones, and he's he didn't have the best finish at at Waco, but he finished fourth at LVC, and I still just think he he has the skill set and potential to win events. Jerry, you can be honest. Did you did you have to put him on the list because otherwise you would you would potentially run into some problems with your with your partner or <laughs> no? All right, it was it was voluntary. She's currently living in another city, right? So you're um, safe. Yeah, you, you could you could tell us if you weren't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, and then I, I have think... I have one honorable mention. Yeah, I give it to uh, me. I won't, it, it's it's impossible to put him on this list, but I wanted to mention Nicholas Antilla uh, because he's who I have as the best European player who we haven't seen play in these in this field yet. Okay, so I I think it's going to be exciting. He's coming coming in a few weeks to play. Uh, I think he's playing Texas States, so that'll be exciting to see him him come play and see how he stacks up. I like your list. I'm very, I'm very interested. I think if you could change one, one thing about the list, what would you change? I think I might just, I I have a small change that I would make is which is that I would flip, uh, I would flip the positions of Thomas Gilbert and Luke Humphreys, just because I think Luke has had such a flaming hot start to the season. That's fair. Uh, But uh, I mean, I like your list. So notable, notable players that are, have been left off your list. Kyle Klein, not on the list. Matty O. Matty O, not on the list. Adam Hammies, not on the list. Yep. Those are sort of the three like big, big names that I think are conspicuously not on your list, but I don't, I don't hate it. And if I was making a list more based around longevity and less sort of hot take early season power rankings, they, they may be on there, but you know, this is the, the hot take tier list. So I love it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I, I'm here for it. This is what we wanted the show to be about. All right, let me hit you with the FPO. All right, uh, now now before you start, I've also written one down, and I, I'm i going to let the people know how many I get in the exact same position as you. All right, I suspect some of them will be exactly the same, especially number one. Number one, I have Kristen Tatar. We disagree? I'll, we I'll tell you at the end. I'll tell you. All right, all right. So I, I have Kristen Tatar, number one. I think just like uh, too consistent at any given tournament that she shows up at, you're not going to be remotely surprised to see her in the lead on day on the last day of the tournament. She has both spins. Yeah, she just like 
throws throws far far enough to not have issues with any of the distance courses. She puts better than basically the entire field. Uh, it's hard it's hard not to have her at number one. Number two, I have Katrina Katrina Allen. Um, she's been playing really well this season, and I honestly I had this as close between between the two of them. Uh, obviously, she won LVC. And the only reason I have her just a, a, a tad bit lower than Kristen is because I think that her her collapse potential is slightly higher than Kristen's. I I worry about Katrina having an off round in a tournament, which would which would ruin her chances of winning the tournament. So that's why that's why I have her as number two. Number three, I have Paige Pierce. She's Paige Pierce. I think that the skill set is just there. That it's a little course dependent, obviously, but she just has so much raw talent that it's it's hard to put her in much lower than this. Number four, uh, you win a DGPT event, you end up pretty high on the list. I have Valerie Montahano. Um, she just won Waco. It, it wasn't especially close uh, by scores. Obviously, we talked about the fact that it was closer than it looked, which I think means I would give her even more credit for being like clutch in a in a close last round. You know, she had uh, had a lot of potentially pretty like challenging shots that were in high pressure situations that she executed extremely well. So I have her at number four, uh, number five, I have Haley King. This is a, uh, skill set ranking. Her skill set is just so high where if her, if her mental game is on and if, you know, I think she's, she's throwing the disc. Well, I think that she might be the hardest player to beat in the division. I just don't think she does that often enough yet to put her a little bit higher. Uh, number six, I have Henna, uh, Bloomrose. I have her above Evelina. Uh, she does appear later on this list, but just because I think that what we've seen, obviously what we saw at LVC was not great, but what we've seen in the subsequent two events at the Memorial and at Waco show that she has a lot of talent. Obviously she throws very far, um, like farther than most of the division, which is already going to put you in in pretty uh, elite level for, for the FPO especially. And, you know, her putting looked better. Her overall game just looked better. So I have her at number six. At number seven, I have Missy Gannon. Uh, Missy's very consistent. Uh, and I think that, you know, last season showed that that consistency uh, could be rewarded with with wins. You know, like I, I think that she's 100% capable of winning tournaments. Uh, at number eight, I have another player who I would put in the, the pretty consistent category. I have Owen Scoggins at eight. Uh, this is somewhat recency bias. Uh, Related because she actually performed very well at LVC and at Waco. She got fourth at at Waco uh, at LVC. I can't remember her exact finish, but I, I think it was also in the top five. Um, uh, no, it wasn't. I take it back. But <laughs> oh, at the Memorial, she got third. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So at the Memorial, she played quite well. 18th at the LVC. That's not an event that shapes to her game super well. So I'm not I'm not super surprised by that. Ninth, I have Evelina. Uh, I would have her higher on the list, but her putting has looked so bad that it's it's hard to have her much higher. Uh, obviously, like we talked about earlier in the show, uh, T to green, probably the best player in the division, but on the putting green, she's one of the weaker players in the division currently. And so for that reason, I can't have her any higher than ninth, but obviously she could still win events. She was in line to win this one. And number 10, this is the maybe the hottest take. I have, uh, I have Kat Merch at number 10. And uh, the reason for this is a some recency bias. She had she has had a good start to the the season, not an unbelievable start to the season, but a good start to the season. Um, and uh, yeah, so she got ninth at the LVC. She took uh, 
She didn't play the memorial, it looks like. Oh, hello, champion. I believe there's a champion investigating my microphone. Yeah, you can hear her. Oh, okay. we can. Yeah. Um, this is one of the side effects of having a, a cat who really likes being on your desk. Yeah, so she didn't play the memorial. And then obviously at uh, Waco, she took fifth. Another great finish. So she's young. I think that potentially this year she's another player who you could see like spike something. Uh, she is only getting better. Her rating jumped, like I think you were saying, her rating jumped like 30 points in the last nine months or something like that. Uh, Pretty close so, yeah. to that, yeah. Yeah. So that's my that's my uh, my 10th player. How many did we get the same? I'm certain that a lot of them we didn't. Uh, I can also talk about some notable players I left off the list and why. So I think the most obvious one that's not on my list that is surprising is uh, Sarah Hokum not being on my list. She uh, was the only player I had on my list that you didn't have on yours. The thing is, I think that it's hard for me to see Hokum winning events. I think if it was a list where you're saying approximately where do they finish, I'm very comfortable having her on the list like that. But I don't think her game shapes super well to winning events. She just can't... Uh, pick up strokes that the rest of the field misses. Like, I think that she has struggle. She's going to struggle on separator holes. I don't think there are going to be a lot. Like you were saying earlier, she's really good at mitigating mistakes, but I just think that one of these other players that I have put before her is going to beat her if all 11 of them are in a tournament together. I think you'll see it, or players more like Sarah Hokum do well on courses that are designed for... FPO, like I'm thinking like something like the diamond layout at Maple Hill, where it's like a fairly technical course. Every hole can can cost you strokes. And so Sarah Hokum's gonna be able to pick up birdies and just minimize mistakes. And th that's the type of event she can win for me. She's not gonna win events like Waco or LVC where they're playing from MPO T pads and distance is such a huge factor. But when when the holes are made with the FPO in mind, I think that's when she can succeed. I just don't think I could put her above any of the other 10 players that I have on my list with the exception, obviously of probably cat merch, but, but I think that, I think that I would, uh, I mean, I can see your argument. So, so who did you, so you had her instead of cat. How do we, how do we do on order? We had five, the same. Okay. I had Kristen cat page and then I had Evelina at fourth because I didn't see it as quite a as big of an issue as as you did. I think. So you don't believe it, that putting the disc in the basket is an important part of disc golf, then? Well, no. I've just seen her put the disc in the basket. I think it's a mental thing, and if she's able to sort of overcome that, I think. But Jared, this is the the flaming hot take after two events tier list, and after two events, her putting has looked so bad. Yeah, but she still hasn't finished outside the top ten. So how you put her at ninth? I don't understand. She finished I mean, I, fifth I, I, and ninth. Yeah, I and, put her precisely the position she just finished at a tournament. But it's this, not again, it's this, not it's not the position you expect them to finish at the tournament. It's how likely you think they are to win. Well, exactly. So I, I think she's first in the division in so many categories. If she just like But like even last if she does, is the division in another one. But even if she doesn't but but like that's clearly an anomaly. Like she's normally not that bad of a putter. If she was consistently that bad at putting, sure. Put her But currently she's that bad of a putter, and it's uh, then in the tier list is for right now. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. So you, we, you have her disagree. fourth. I think that's crazy. We had Haley and Hannah the same. Yeah. Then I had Hokum seventh, Val eighth, Missy ninth, Own tenth. Okay. 
So like relatively similar, I think. I I put less weight on Val's win. Like I put her in, but I don't yeah. I still don't think I'd pick Val over For what it's maybe, worth, your list is basically player for player the uh ulti the Udisc Live FPO world rankings. Interesting. Because <laughs> uh, you had you had Val seventh, right? Uh I had Val eighth. I had Hokum seventh. Oh, you had Hokum seventh. So so you're so the 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 Udisc Live rankings are Kristen, Paige, Katrina, Evelina, Haley, Hannah, Valerie Montahano, Missy Gannon, Hokum, Own. Uh that's the top ten. Yeah, so that's that's kind of cool. Udisc, if you're looking for a, <laughs> a data scientist, hit me up. Um, All right. Well, yeah. cool. So those, those are our top tens. We'll post those later. Uh, tell us yours. Tweet at us. Send a message, comment on Instagram. Let us know. Um, but yeah, those are our flaming hot, way too early in the season to really be sure. Uh, power rankings, maybe at the midway point of the season, we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about these again with some more information. Yeah, I'm sure there will be more We'll, we'll, we'll get slightly less hot takey throughout the season. Well, they'll still probably be hot, just maybe a little less hot. Yeah. We'll have more data to go on, at least. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's let's move on now to the look ahead. We're going to do a quick one here. So this weekend, there's a Silver Series event. Um, it's the Open at Belton. This event's in, in Texas, so it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's still part of the Texas swing. The field is not fully flushed out on either side. Uh no page, for example, uh, no page on the uh, FPO side. Some of the Europeans aren't playing, even though I think they're still in the States. Um, so this course is uh, a pretty interesting one, I guess you could say. Like it's a kind of a combination of being open, but then there's a lot of OB, right? Yeah, there's there's yeah, it's, it's sort of similar to Waco. There's like some wooded technical holes with less OB and then there's some more open holes with OB. There's there's more obstructed greens than than Waco. One of the things they're known for are like they've like constructed their own greens on I think three holes. So they're like kind of interesting. There's like a turtleback green. There's an another one with steps, I think. And then they've they've claimed they've built a new one this year with like a ramp where you can like theoretically like score get it in the basket with like a skip shot or a roller or something so that'll be interesting to see that sounds like mini golf-esque almost (laughs) like next they're gonna install a large windmill that you have to throw the disc through on the correct timing in order to (laughs) yeah i mean look it's a silver series event i'm here for it experiment try whatever you want to try i'm this i this to me feels like the perfect kind of event to do that kind of stuff for yeah and it is one of the like since it started it's been one of the more well attended silver series events or like i mean the, the list silver series so the list on the mpo side is pretty full i mean there's a couple of people missing but uh, most of the people who are missing are missing for injury reasons not not yeah. because they just didn't want to play it i don't think champion is really he's on one tonight i think i, I can hear that messed up his dinner timing and he's he's upset about it um yeah but then on the fpo side yeah it's a bit of a thinner field so it'll be it'll be interesting to see who comes out on top i I mean obviously you've got Kristen and katrina there i think i would expect it to be one of those two but rally montahano's there 
this is a course where distance matters. This is a course, like we were saying earlier, where you the both divisions play from the same tee pad. Um, so maybe you could see a, a cheeky Ella Hansen. Natalie Ryan was playing really well at LVC, which is another like distance matters course uh, until she got injured. Maybe you see a, another good finish by her. Heather Young did really well last year. She pushed uh, Katrina to the to the last hole. So yeah, it is it is a course where she's proven she can she can shoot well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's sort of our our short look ahead. We're not going to spend a ton of time because it, again, it's it's not a full DGPT event. But we'll we figured we'd mention it's going to happen. We'll, we'll talk about it next episode when the results come in. We won't we won't go too far into it, but we we wanted to at least get you up to date on on what was going on. Um, now let's move on to our closing segment. So this is the disc on the desk. Uh, last week I presented, uh, a pretty sweet Sphere. Um, Jerry, I think you got it in nine. It was something like that. Yeah. Still not as few as you'd gotten it in, which was six and not as many as I have taken, which I think last my my worst is still like 15, 18, something horrible like that. Yeah. I got uh, but it anyways, in nine. So this week is you. So uh, let me know. For those who aren't aware, if you're listening to the show for the first time, the way the Disc on the Desk segment works is that Jer has a disc on his desk. I can ask him yes or no questions, and and I'm trying to guess the disc that is on his desk in the fewest possible guesses. Uh, So for example, I can say things like, is the disc made in North America? Yes, say yes or no. And then ideally I narrow down what the disc is from there. Uh, Jer is the uh, reigning champion at this by quite a lot. He got a disc in six guesses. Uh, I am the reigning loser. Uh, I have taken the most guesses and probably the second most guesses and maybe the third most guesses. Uh, it's been it's been a rough one for me. I think the worst so far is 18. So I, we're always just hoping to be not, not yeah, as not, bad as 18. Not bumping up 18. I, precisely, yes, exactly. All right, so let's kick it off. Is this disc made in North America? No. Okay, so is this disc made in Europe? Yes. Okay, great. That rules out a couple of options. Is this disc part of the Latitude 60? Is is it a trilogy disc? No. Okay. Is this a Castaplast disc? No. Okay. That does complicate things. Uh, what else is made in Europe? Rutro. Um, what am I forgetting here? You said yes to it being made in Europe, right? Correct. Oh, God. So it can't be RPM. It's not Castaplast and it's not Lat64. Oh, 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 oh. I see. Is this a Discmania disc? Yes. Okay, phew. <laughs> Glad I didn't just spew off. I was going to guess a bunch of manufacturers. <laughs> I was that wondering I didn't think... if you are going to guess yeah. your literal favorite manufacturer. <laughs> but... <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, so it's a European Discmania disc. Is it a mid-range? No. Is it a putter? No. Uh, is it a fairway driver? Yes. Okay. Uh, is it an essence? No. God damn it. Is it an instinct? Yes. All right. Perfect. 10. It's you know, a, that's pretty good for me, given that you picked the disc, my literal favorite manufacturer. Well, and given it, 
when you were on four, you were about to start. I was like, all right, we're getting 20. <laughs> yeah, I was about to start spewing off, like, is it a Millennium Discs disc? Like, I think is it a Viking North America. Disc? I looked, it was a disc manufacturer that I knew the name of, and I was going to ask. I was going to ask if it was a Viking Discs disc. Like, yeah, we were European. We were we were about to head down. It's a sweet down, pink down the rabbit hole. Lux Instinct. Uh, it's got like the you know the vinyl stamp they did. Yeah. That, like, yeah, it's got a green vinyl stamp on it. It's kind of oh, like sweet. a swirly, swirly pink with kind of like a purple halo, some white swirls. It's a it's a really good looking disc. Lux is the one plastic type that I don't currently have a an instinct in. It's the only one I have. I have it in every other plastic type. I think that they make it in. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think so. At least I, I could be wrong about that, but I I have. Yeah, because the the royal rages aren't. Uh, no, they're vapor. I think they're vapor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Trent has yeah. a meta plastic. I, I have a me- I have a meta plastic instinct as well. How do you like that one? I've been looking for one. It's stiffer, uh, right? It's stiffer. I don't know whether it's mine. I, I don't throw it very often. I find it's a little flippy, which interesting. is interesting because the plastic is supposed to be more overstable. Yeah. Um, but I find, yeah, I've just been throwing the vapor, the vapor one when I want that. That's my most overstable instinct. And then I have a, a Neo one. I, I mentioned it on uh, last week's episode, actually. I have, a, I have a Neo one that's my kind of like flippy to straight, to flate, like to straight um, instinct. And then if I want something to throw like a turnover with, that's when I reach for the, the meta plastic one. Yeah. It's, this, this isn't in my bag currently. I currently have, all right. I currently have another plastic that you don't probably don't have an instinct in. I have, uh, I don't know what they call it, but it's an opto X chameleon one from, uh, the, the mystery think, boxes. Isn't that meta? Isn't that what the meta one is? I don't think so. Because so, the it might, it might be Opto X, but it's not it's not Chameleon. Well, because the one that I have says Meta, but it is like the Chameleon effect. Oh, okay, maybe it is then. Maybe I, this the was one. like the first one they they did. It was like the special. It was like right when they released the Instinct. They yeah, put yeah. It in the mystery box, and it's got the bar stand. It's the one Eagle hit that flick roller ace with. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's the one I have. Maybe not though. Maybe I just have a regular metal one. I'm unsure. Yeah, but all right, that's cool. the one that's well, currently in my bag. But I've been wanting to get out and throw this one yet, but I haven't sort of taken my bin of discs to the field yet and thrown a bunch of the discs that I want to throw. So I'm I'm very soon. much so looking forward to it warming up a little bit in Montreal so that I can actually go throw. I've been, uh, yeah, I haven't been haven't been able to yet, but uh, soon, TM. Uh, I guess it might, might still be a month still at least <laughs> Yeah, winter, I mean, winter is endless. I've been playing multiple times a week. Like I played three rounds at the farm on, on Saturday. And yeah. The Jeraleum grudge match is likely not going to go well. The next still time it happens. Very sore, but I had such an up and down round. I was, I was on a heater at one point. I had five birdies in a row. I posted this picture to the, to the Twitter accounts of, you want to check it out you can my putt for the sixth birdie in a row was like a 25 footer on a very elevated basket and i hit the like number sign on top of the basket and it was hanging off the the chain assembly like the top Oy vey. didn't count but 
unlucky. Yeah. All right. Do you have uh, anything else you want to say before we wrap up the episode? Nope. I think that's that's all from me. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we hope you tune in again next week. If you want to find any of us on uh, social media, you can A, contact the podcast, Jared or I will answer this. You can email us at thediscgolfhour at gmail.com. If you're looking for us on Twitter or Instagram, you can find us there at the Disc Golf Hour on both platforms. If you're looking for Jerry, you can find him on Twitter at JRH White. And if you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram at LC Discworld. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.